This evening I'd like to explore the core theme of our retreat, that is um, embracing the dark and inviting the light. And I'd like first to begin just by saying a few words about listening to a talk that uh, we can do in, in various ways, but one way that we particularly encourage is really to listen with one's whole being and to be grounded in the body and let the talk be there for your whole being, all the different parts, your intuition, and not just the mental or cognitive. One good way to help with that is to really just stay really present to one's body as you listen. So, although rationally you know that we've been here in the retreat less than 24 hours, I want to let you know that that's actually wrong. We've been here three days. It may feel like that, right? And long days, perhaps, or a lot of different experiences, or a lot of the same. And um, the major criterion that we use for success in meditation practice is staying here. Or maybe more broadly, I can say, staying present to one's experience. Whatever that is, with one's best wisdom and compassion. That's it. It's not really about finding bliss or peace or having spectacular lights arrive. But it's actually about that uh, ability to be really as responsive as possible to whatever is happening. Uh, whether that's pleasant or unpleasant. I'll come back to that because it's really actually at the heart of our practice. So John said right before uh, I was beginning, he said, it looks really dark out there. (laughs) And and it is. And here's a short poem from uh, John Updike about our, our times. The days are short, the sun a spark, hung thin between dark and dark. And we've come, really, and in a sense uh, stopped a lot of the outward activity. The momentum inwardly from that activity is still present for most or all of us. And we've come into this uh, place of looking inward and come into this place of potential renewal. Uh, The the great historian uh, Toynbee said that actually what really gives uh, culture and civilization creativity are cycles of withdrawal and return when we somehow move away from the ordinary, the everyday, in whatever way we do that. Sometimes it could be a vacation or it could be, um, I don't know, reading a thousand page novel (laughs) or whatever, but we somehow get away from the everyday and ordinary and we acquire a new perspective. 
And then we see things a little differently when we return. And that uh, creative cycle is what we've really embraced. And we've done it at this time of, of, of darkness. So I want to uh, talk some about the different elements of our practice of going into the dark and inviting the light. And uh, I want to talk about a few different dimensions of darkness. You know, there's some of the metaphors really that we have. Uh, the first is the way that we imitate the earth in stop and are still, the way that we're like the earth in being with darkness. And the second is the way that we are open to mystery and the unknown, sort of darkness as not knowing. And the third is the metaphor of darkness as being with what's uh, difficult or painful or unpleasant as part of our learning process. And the fourth is the way that darkness is um, potentially generative and fertile as it is with the earth. The darkness and the stillness uh, brings forth uh, new growth. And related to that, I want to explore those ways in which the darkness brings light and the ways that we can also cultivate um, what we might call the light uh, intentionally. I think our practice really is a rhythm, really, of going into the dark and going into the light. And we find, uh, as we get more familiar with both, that they are deeply interrelated, that we can't really know the light unless we're willing to go into the darkness. And that increasingly find that there is a light inside the dark and darkness inside what sometimes seems light. So that's what I'll explore. First, I want to talk a little bit about how uh, our our core practice, this practice of developing a caring or kind attention, what we call mindfulness, linked with loving-kindness, how that core practice really can prepare us to, to be with the dark and the light. And so just some reminders about this, this uh, very simple, beautiful practice uh, that we call mindfulness. And actually, um, I think that emphasis on, on caring attention really suggest that we really actually need to bring the heart into our word. That mindfulness is actually a little misleading as a translation of sati. I don't know, maybe we could call it uh, mind heartfulness because it really is about the very word that we uh, are using. We re- it's not just about the mind as we understand that in, in Western societies, but it's about the development of the awakened mind, the awakened heart. In the Buddhist cultures, those are not uh, firmly distinguished. They're more seen as uh, connected. We tend to divide them. And so I think very, very helpful to keep with that sense that our core practice is developing caring attention. We can always ask, uh, 
is my attention caring? And is my caring when I do loving kindness practice, is that attentive? We can keep asking those questions or we can ask that in daily life as well. I once did a, uh, a several week loving kindness or metta retreat About, about five weeks of, of loving kindness practice. And one of my deep and really lasting uh, insights was that after a while, the practice was quite strong. And the moments when I wasn't caring really stood out. If I would be in the dining hall and, and say a little bit judgmentally, that person took a sh- a lot of food on, on his plate there. So I, I, sense, I sense you've looked around the dining hall a little bit. And so if I would make that comment, it would feel off to me, you know, as it may, may to you, or it would feel off. And I would want to, I said, oh, I have to come back with four metaphrases for that person, you know, and... And, and so that was, that was important. But I also noticed that even when I was attentive in a non-judgmental way, and I would notice that person is walking with a limp, that also felt off if there wasn't some care connected with that simple act of attention. I, and I can't say that I've maintained that, but it really has stayed with me, kind of as a, a sense of possibility that that uh, mature attention can really be infused with care. And I'm, I'm seeing that more and more. It's a very simple idea, but actually really, I think, uh, potentially uh, powerful for our core practice to really keep that. So we cultivate that sense of awareness with the breath, with the body, with whatever's happening. When we, we see that it's present-centered, we see that we also need, in a way, to settle our attention before we can really uh, sustain attention. That there has to be a certain kind of settling or stopping of the momentum of the mind. And for many of us, that's a lot of what we've explored today. How can I settle? How can I arrive? How can I be here? How can I pay attention? You know, and we can have some patience with the process of settling. I think for my own practice, the first three years, I was primarily with the breath. You could say that my settling took several years. So if that's true, we have a three-day retreat, be patient. (laughs) And so, but we settle, you know, we settle as we're here. And in a sense, we settle every sitting or every, every time we come back from the meal and maybe we've gone off and thought some, and we come back and we settle. So that settling is really important because our mindfulness really needs to be able to stay with whatever we're paying attention to. This is from about 1,500 years ago from the uh, tradition of the Abhidhamma, one of the um, traditions of commentary on, on the more psychological dimensions of practice. Mindfulness signifies presence of mind, attentiveness to the present, 
it has the characteristic of not wobbling, not floating away from the object. Its function is absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. So simply by coming back each moment, that's what we're cultivating. And our, our sense of mindfulness also, I think as we know, has the quality of being non-reactive, that we are not, uh, we learn to be present with what's happening without pushing it away, trying to make it different, or grabbing hold of what we think are the good experiences. We have this connected way of being with whatever's happening, but it's balanced and not really reacting either positively or negatively. It doesn't mean that we're not filled with feeling. It doesn't mean cold or disconnected or disembodied, but there's a sense of of the possibility of being very full with experience, but not being reactive. Because actually when we're reactive, which we mean that kind of semi-compulsive grabbing hold or pushing away, we actually are really not much with experience. We're with our reactions. We're with our projections and so forth. And so in the traditional teachings, we bring that quality of mindfulness, of presence of awareness, we bring it to uh, our body, sometimes called the first foundation of mindfulness. We bring it to the sense of feeling tone, the sense of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, which is usually, uh, if we don't attend to it, it's a precursor to being reactive. The pleasant tends to make us grab hold and the unpleasant tends to make us push away. And so attending to that can be very helpful. We attend to thoughts and emotions as well. And we learn how to attend to and and become aware of some of the the patterns of experience, both personal and more universal. And as we do this, that sense of presence, this core practice that we're doing, over time leads to wisdom. It leads to the awakening of of our being. It's this, the real, the basis for this practice is looking at experience over and over and over again. Repetition is really a big thing here. That's, I think you, you probably got that, right? <laughs> you know, that we just keep coming back, we sit, we keep coming back, the same thing keeps happening. You know, here's a secret. Learning doesn't occur the first or second or third time we notice something. It, it occurs the 438th time we notice something, or the 3,587. These are quotes from the text. No, no. <laughs> Not really. So it, it actually it makes the whole thing both mysterious and really requiring that, that continual return, the repetition. And so sometimes when we get impatient, it means change is just around the corner, but we're not quite ready for it. So it's very interesting. Very, it's very fascinating. And as we, as we sit, we, the wisdom develops especially because we notice things over and over again and we learn what leads to suffering or what leads to freedom or greater freedom. It's really as simple as that. And we notice our tendencies of mind. We see what's there and we see what's helpful and we see what's not helpful. That's sort of a short way of saying it. And as we deepen in mindfulness, 
we start to live more and more with that sense of presence. And the presence can get big. That sense of awareness and presence can get big and can almost become unbounded. We can have that sense of awareness developed from the very simple act of being mindful of the breath. And it can get as big as this room, as big as the sky. You know, there's, um, there's some words that I like to use to kind of remind myself of that larger quality of awareness, which is the potential that I actually say to myself uh, quite often that come from the 16th century from the, uh, a Tibetan teacher named uh, Dagpo Tashi Namgyal. And it goes like, they go like this. I say it often, let's see if I can actually remember it. <laughs> so, open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. Can you feel that bigness of presence there? That's really what we are cultivating and that we we touch at times. So these are really the core tools, uh, sense of presence, non-reactivity, connected with the quality of kindness that we bring into into the darkness, into being with the darkness. And it's really those um, capacities which help our being with the darkness be also an invitation of light. This, This very simple practice. Because in a way, the act of being mindful or present is, has the quality of light. And we bring light to anything that seems dark in any of the ways that I mentioned. And there's already light there. I'll say more about that as we go. So first, there's that sense of going into the darkness as the act of stopping. And for some of us, it's stopping a lot of momentum. And and I've heard in the groups today, just for many people, how joyful it is to stop. How wonderful it is to um, not have the busyness. The joy of no emails. This is from a um, close friend of mine, Diana Winston. She wrote this about how fast life gets sometimes and why we need to stop. Contemporary America, and now some of you are from Canada, so it's not, not that different there. Contemporary America, we love fast things, fast cars, fast meals, microwaves, one-night stands, instant credit, overnight express, cable modems, amphetamines, pizza delivery, What did we do before email? I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, eat ice cream, make music, cook, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk, my God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out and I'm running fast and furiously. I want it to stop. Ouch, it's painful. Why won't it stop? Can't you make it stop? 
God, my God, what's wrong with this country? Have we all gone crazy? Are we insane? We've lost touch. We've lost touch. We've got to stop this endless running about. All I want to do is slow down, just crawl in bed and rock myself to sleep. Not this craziness, not this crazy running about. I am so tired. Please, somebody, you have got to help me stop. (laughs) Anyone relate to that? (laughs) So, hmm, kind of felt that energy. (laughs) So, so we, there's, in itself, there's nothing wrong with going fast in itself. But of course, what it's harder sometimes to pay attention when we're going so quickly. And we often get locked in very repetitive patterns. You know, a lot of the stopping is to, is to let us see our own momentum, our own patterns, our own habits, our own cycles, our own ways that we maybe we just get lost in habitual patterns. And on a retreat, we can see that. We stop so we can notice where we've been and we can notice this momentum that carries us. And we can decrease that momentum over time. I think we learn better that we can trust that when we stop and are silent, we will hear what we need to hear. It's something I certainly have come to trust in terms of retreats or just that, that stopping, that we often, for myself, when I haven't uh, known what to do, uh, retreats have been very beautiful for letting me know sometimes what's there or what's beneath the surface. Uh, to really come back to something that's important or that's present for me. I'll say a little bit more of that in a moment, but that, this quality of stopping is something that we do by coming on retreat. And in a way, it's that practice of settling is also a kind of stopping, but it's not a stopping where we force it to stop in a way. We really uh, let it, in a, in a sense, stop by itself. If we, so we don't try to suppress thoughts but we notice them, and when we notice them, we let them go. We don't feed them. We don't indulge. You know, that's part of our practice. You notice a very juicy thought about how, about something that would totally resolve the core three issues of your life. <laughs> well, I was going to say we encourage you not to follow those thoughts. Though. I think sometimes that could be wise, but... <laughs> But usually, usually that voice saying this is the way to totally resolve everything could be a little bit delusive. Have you noticed? So we, we work with that discipline of coming back. We settle and we just really see what's there. And there's also the sense of being with the darkness as uh, being with the unknown, with the, uh, sometimes with the mysterious. Um, really cultivating a sense of not knowing is right at the heart of our practice. Like John was saying this morning, this wonderful phrase from the Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi, who talks about cultivating beginner's mind. Really don't know. know, Really don't know what's going to happen. It's a wonderful practice. It's harder as we get more experienced. But it's a wonderful practice to do right with every sitting. To say... I don't know what will happen, 
I am open to whatever will happen. I've actually sometimes used that on retreats for every sitting. I say to myself at the beginning something like that. I do not know what will happen. I want to be open to whatever's happening because I think we know all the ways that we sort of subtly try to make this or that experience happen or get to this or that experience from the last sitting or the last retreat or where we think we should be. And this quality of being with the darkness as as being with what is there in a way that we don't necessarily know what will happen is really, really crucial for our practice. It really is actually a place where the integrity of our practice comes through. And we're, we really actually are open to the flow of life. Krishnamurti, some of you know, he has, he has a whole book that's called Freedom from the Known. Very interesting phrase, isn't it? And of course, it's kind of a play because in a sense, we want to be free from the more habitual known, the more superficial known, and that opens us up, in in a sense, to a deeper insight. So we cultivate not knowing in order eventually to know in a deeper way. That's one way we might say, say it. And it's been, again, personally, it's been an important practice for me a lot of times when I haven't known what to do, sometimes I've just tried to keep that sense of not knowing. You know, one of the times that was a large time, that was most recent, was about a little over 10 years ago. And I was finishing a cycle of work. And I knew I wanted to get back further to uh, meditative practice. And I had a sense that I needed to deepen in the ways that were calling me, but I didn't exactly know. In a sense, I didn't know how to do it. And I managed to find a way to cut my work kind of in half and really have boundaries around it. So I was not working very much. I had about, for about a year, I had about 80% of the time open. And I was able to work just enough to kind of get by okay. Of course, it's a privilege to be able to do that. And was able just to really be with the unknown and really knowing that I, sometimes we just need to create space, open space before we know what comes next. You know, and it's not all the good thinking somehow is not enough. Sometimes we need to have things come from our bones and our bellies and our, and our guts, so to speak. And for me, it was something like that, that I needed to just not do anything and not even think about what came next and trust that it would come out of the not knowing. And it took a while, but, but it did come, you know, and but it was sometimes scary, you know, to have some days that were unstructured and I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and what am I doing and where am I going? And I don't know, but there was some trust that opening up the space would, would work. And I've done that uh, quite a few times in my life. You know, and I was, it's also interesting how, how that can yield fruit. You know, I was thinking of a story of Gandhi from 19, uh, I think 1930, 1931, which is one of my favorite stories where he was um, not knowing which way to go in the independence movement in India. And he said, I don't know. 
You know, and there were people who were advocating uh, violent resistance against the British. And he said, I don't know. And other people were saying, you're Gandhi, you should know. <laughs> he said, I don't know. And he said, I'm going to go sit on my porch indefinitely. And he did that. He sat on the porch, kind of overlooking the river in his community. And he just sat there. And people would sometimes visit him. And he said to himself, I have to wait until I hear the inner voice. I know the inner voice will come that will tell me what to do next, but I do not hear it now. I do not know what it is. And he sat for um, six weeks. You know, you could imagine pressure that other people felt. I think my sense was that he was pretty relaxed with it and probably enjoying sitting on the porch, you know. And after six weeks, he said, we will march to the sea and make salt against the British monopoly on salt, which is absurd in, a, in that kind of climate because salt would be necess- at that time was necessary for preserving foods. And having the British having a monopoly on making salt was one of the absurdities of that colonial setup. And so they marched, he marched to the sea, started with a thousand people. And I think there were, by the time they got to the sea, 250 miles away, there were 15,000 people. And they made salt from the sea and sparked weeks and weeks of people making salt all over India. And historians say that it was actually the turning point because the British came down with great brutality and lost legitimacy in much of the eyes of the, many of the eyes of the world. And that all came out of him just sitting and waiting and not knowing. So we cultivate that, that sense of being able to do that, you know, and it's hard because sometimes we, here we can feel very pressing concerns, very sometimes difficult emotions or difficult circumstances related to family or work or finances. And I'm not saying at all not to, uh, not to, sorry for the double or triple negatives, but uh, I am not saying at all not to, (laughs) um, not to plan and be effective, but sometimes we just have to sit with, with what's there. And here especially, we learn how to sit with what's unresolved. It's really, really crucial for our practice to be able to sit with what's unresolved stay with it, and just stay with the practice, with the integrity of the practice. And over time, I think, we develop more and more faith. We watch, we watch how that works. And in a sense, we, we cultivate darkness. We cultivate the love of darkness. You see, I think I have a poem. This is from Rilke. I love the dark hours of my being. My mind deepens into them. There I can find, as, old, as in old letters, the days of my life already lived and held like a legend and understood. Then the knowing comes. I can open to another life that's wide and timeless. I love the dark hours of my being. Not so easy, right? To, to, to be with not knowing.
And one way we can stay with not knowing in our practice is to bring our experience down to being with our body, our breath, our emotions, our thoughts, and be very careful about getting spun off in stories. The stories are often stories in which we seem to tell ourselves, I know. You know, I may know, I know that this is going to work out awfully. You know, we often have catastrophic stories or negative stories. Actually, I think many of us know this, we often prefer the known suffering of bad stories over the unknown. Do you know that, (laughs) that one? We often prefer the known suffering of bad stories and fear-inducing stories over being with the unknown. And so the invitation is to be with what's unresolved or unknown in each of us. So a third aspect of uh, this uh, metaphorical sense of being with darkness is to be with what's difficult. And the secret is that when we're mindful of what's difficult, at that moment of mindfulness, it's not difficult. We could say mindfulness of difficulty is not difficult. Mindfulness of pain in itself is not painful at that moment of mindfulness. Mindfulness of anger is not angry. There's something else else happening. And so today, probably for many of us, was a day in which there may have been difficulties. I know from the groups, there were, the, for many, there was sleepiness or there was sometimes uh, sadness or sometimes uh, feeling uncomfortable. And, and we know there can be uh, restlessness or um, feeling antsy or um, having self-judgment. The whole show especially turns up on the first day. For those of you for whom this is your first retreat, you've been through the hardest part of the retreat. It's all downhill. (laughs) I was trying to think of the right metaphor. I say it's all dessert. It's all downhill. I don't know. Choose your metaphor. But, uh, But one of the glories of this practice is that we learn how to be with the difficult. We learn how to be comfortable or more comfortable with the uncomfortable. And it's incredibly powerful. It's one of the reasons why mindfulness and presence is being brought into the, the world at such a rapid rate because it's so useful in fields like psychology or medicine or in law where conflicts may arise and so forth. Um, and we, we learn better how to be with what's difficult. We learn especially that we can be with what's unpleasant without being reactive. And I want to tell you what probably is my favorite teaching that I actually, I have to get in every time I talk at the solstice retreat. So it's now that this is a teaching that some of you have heard, but I, I don't get tired of teaching it. It's called the teaching of the two arrows. How many of you know the teaching of the two arrows? How many of you have not heard it yet? Okay. Um, It's a teaching by the Buddha. 
and it's a teaching related to being with difficulty. He asked the question, or he made a statement first and then asked the question. The statement was, everyone has, unpleasant, has some unpleasant experiences. How does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? You know, the Buddha, as a asker of puzzles. So how does, how does that work? So he, say, he answered that with a kind of a parable. He said, we all are as if shot by an arrow. We all, and the arrow we could call the arrow of pain or of unpleasant experiences. We all have some unpleasant experiences. We have unpleasant experiences at times in the body, physical pain, we at times get sick. We have unpleasant emotional experiences at times. Fear or grief or anger sometimes can be unpleasant. We are treated unjustly or unfairly sometimes. And that can be very unpleasant. And we all, we have, we all have those experiences at times. The non-practitioner or the, you know, or the person who is not at that moment practicing tends because of the first arrow to shoot a second arrow. Either we could say at oneself or at others, as if shooting the second arrow would get rid of the first arrow of pain. We can call the second arrow the arrow of suffering and distinguish between pain and suffering. And so an example, it would be when I have physical pain, I can, we can find ourselves sometimes contracting or tensing around the physical pain. And that can actually, in the long run, create chronic pain that is way more painful than the original stimulus. And this is one of the reasons that meditation has been so useful in medical contexts because some doctors say that as much as 80% of what patients experience as pain is the shooting of the second arrow. It's the reaction to the initial pain, we might say. And that if they can learn simply to be with the original pain, they may reduce pain by as much as 80%. I think we know that very, very well emotionally, right? We have difficult interactions with someone and I may have a difficult interaction with a partner or with a, a friend, a coworker, and it's unpleasant. And sometimes rather than really feel the unpleasantness directly, I go into what? I go into blaming, judging. I start a three-year war with that person. I get into a fight. I make it the other person's fault or I make it my fault. You know, I blame myself. I judge myself. And I can, in a, because of a five-minute incident, I can be in a three-day or three-week or three-year funk. Is that familiar? Has anyone ever done anything like that? About... About one-third of the group raised their hands. <laughs> so some people are now raising both hands. <laughs> so uh, that's the second arrow. That's the second arrow. And what I also love is that the, the teaching is about learning not to shoot the second arrow. It's about learning, can I be with what's unpleasant, physical, emotional, and just be with it. 
noticing where I react, but learning over time to not react so much, not shoot the second arrow so much. And that's taken as one of the central ways that we practice. And it's, it's really the guide for how we practice with what's difficult, whatever it is. Not easy, right? Not easy, because we have all sorts of tendencies to shoot the second arrow. And we have to watch those and notice them. What I also love is that that teaching is big enough so it really connects the personal sense of personal transformation with social transformation, that I see what Gandhi and King were doing as saying something exactly the same. We have received this first arrow of oppression. We will not shoot the second arrow and continue cycles of violence. You know? So this, you get that connection, it's really quite something. You know, that this is really a basis that when we learn this well, we can bring it out into these other dimensions of our lives. We can bring it into interpersonal relationships. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about how to do that skillfully, but the principle is something that we learn with that repetition over and over on the cushion. And it's so central to bringing this practice uh, into our lives in a full way. Not an easy practice, but the principle it's clear and we train, we train to develop here with that principle. So we learn how to be with the unpleasant. We learn how to hang out some with unpleasant physical sensations. We learn to be with difficult emotions. You know, it's not that we always stay with what's unpleasant and awful. Sometimes it's wise to shift our posture or if we're if we're totally swept away by something that overwhelms us and that's painful, it's very wise not to stay with it. It's wise to come back to balance. But as we, as we stay with what's difficult, as we have the experience of what's difficult, this is where the darkness starts to turn into light, that we start to, we start to learn, we start to, you know, we develop compassion. The heart opens when we stay with difficulty, our own or that of others. We see more, we see how we can not shoot the second arrow. We see how we can do that. And it's something deeply, deeply needed. Our culture doesn't know how to go into difficulty very well, I have to say. And so when we learn this here, we can really not just bring it out in our personal and interpersonal lives, but that principle of being able to be with what's difficult and stay with it is something that's deeply needed. You know, we, I think, I don't want to go too much into this, but I think we know how there's a tremendous amount of real denial, not wanting to see certain things in our culture, not wanting to look at certain issues or crises, whether they're economic or ecological. And there's a tremendous amount of um, denial and confusion. A lot of it comes because we somehow as a culture are not mature enough to be with what's difficult very well. We can do it some, but not very well. And that sort of points to this last aspect of darkness, that the darkness is also generative. The darkness is also fertile. You know, as nature, even though it's still and has stopped, has all sorts of amazing processes going on. 
that are getting ready for the sprouts, for the buds, for everything to break loose with spring. You know, and in a way, we, we're like that when we sit in here, that we sit and we're, we, we are uh, birthing something, to use that metaphor. Something, something may come as we stay, as we stay with the darkness. You know, I was thinking of my, my father was blind the last 25 years of his life. And in that external dark sense of darkness, something really opened up increasingly emotionally and spiritually. It was really interesting to see how sometimes that external darkness can lead to more, more light. And, you know, there are these old, old um, almost old stories or old traditions in so many of the world's... Uh, religions and spiritual traditions of wise people being blind. You know, there's something about that connection of being able to be with the darkness and something generative comes out of that. Or we come out of, you know, we, we are with our difficulties and we see how something beautiful can come out of it increasingly. This is from Rumi. Some nights stay up till dawn. He's saying, immerse yourself in the darkness. Some nights stay up till dawn, as the moon sometimes does for the sun. Be a full bucket pulled up the dark way of a well, then lifted out into the light. And there's this way that we, in our practice, we as we open to what's difficult or unknown, we come often to know. We have insights come. There's something that we really, I think, as I speak out of my own experience, I come to trust more in this capacity for a deep knowing, which is not the same thing as a shallow knowing. That can come from being with the dark, with the unknown. That can be, that can, that can be with the challenging. And something, something can come out of that. I'll, I'll tell one powerful story uh, from uh, Rachel Naomi Remen. Some of you may know this. Um, a story of working with a young man with cancer who was in his 20s and he lost his leg. And she asked him to make a drawing of his experience. And he made a drawing of this vase that was um, darkened and had dark cracks running through the vase. And that was it. That was the drawing of his condition. He stayed and worked with her over a number of months. And it's quite a beautiful story because he came to, he at first had immense amounts of anger. He had to work with his anger. He stayed with his anger. And over time, he came to in a sense, work through the anger, something else came to emerge. And he found himself wanting to work with people who were younger, who had cancer in some way. And he, you know, the story is that he actually, one young woman that he worked with had a family history of breast cancer. And she, uh, I, think, I think for preventative reasons, had a breast taken off in her 20s. And she was really uh, miserable about that. 
and he um, worked with her and talked with her, and she didn't know it at first, but he um, he had a I guess a prosthetic, and at first she didn't know that, and when he when she was really down in the dumps, he just at one moment just tossed away his false leg and started jumping on one leg and. They got married. <laughs> and later, <laughs> and later, um, as he was leaving, being there, he came back and he uh, talked with uh, Rachel and she asked him to look at that uh, drawing that he had done near the beginning of his process, and he said, you know, that drawing is not complete. And he went to the drawing, he asked for some crayons, and he went to the drawing and he picked up the yellow crayon and he started making lines um, around the cracks, and they became actually lines that looked like light. And his... um, understanding that he expressed at that moment to her was this. He said, the dark is where the light comes through. The cracks, the wounds are where where the light comes through when one stays with that process. So we can see that as we practice, as we practice more and more. And we can also, I think, at the same time that we go into what's challenging or difficult, we also deliberately cultivate what's beautiful and positive. In a way, we're doing that here with developing mindfulness or developing loving kindness, that we deliberately evoke uh, beauty. And it's actually, I've, I've come to see over the last years that there actually are two broad rhythms of transformation. One of them is to be willing to go into what's difficult, into our old stuff or our wounds or our conflicts, inner conflicts, conflicts with others, our grief, our sadness, to be willing to go into that. You know, in the senses that it's possible to go in and, as it were, come out the other end, but that there's also a second track. It's not only going into the difficulty. Sometimes we interpret meditation practice. We hear the Buddhist teaching of the Four Noble Truths, and the first is suffering, and the second is the roots of suffering. Okay, suffering, it's where it's at. I'm going to be a... I'm going to embrace suffering, but it's, it can't... We, that's certainly a piece of it, to really notice our suffering, but there's there's this other dimension that, in my experience, takes as much or more time, which is where we really cultivate the awakened qualities. We cultivate mindfulness and equanimity and balance and metta and joy and a sense of beauty. And that's a big part of our practice. And I've come to see, particularly in doing work, as Heather was saying, uh, we teach a lot on... um, working with the judgmental mind. And I've seen that particularly there, that going into judgments and seeing what's there is going into some painful stuff usually. And people who are doing that work have to also cultivate a sense of joy. And it's really like, it's actually cultivating our sense of our deeper nature. 
And that's also really crucial, this deeper nature we can call our awakened nature. And so we do that. We, we, we need that for, to have the balance and the perspective to go into the difficult. We need, that's, you know, metta is beautiful as a practice, cultivating joy, loving kindness. We need to have that to be able to have the inner balance and the perspective to go into what's challenging. We really need both. You know? Maybe we need the sense of being able to open to suffering, to have the um, energy and the interest to go into the beautiful in a way that's not just attaching to it, but really is opening to that awakened quality. You know, so they, there's this beautiful way that they're, they're combined, that we go into the dark, we're willing to go into the darkness, but we also have to cultivate a lot going into the light. Let me see if I can find, there's a beautiful poem by Mary Oliver. It's about this, this being open to the beauty, going into the beauty. It's, called, it's a poem called, Who Said This? Something whispered something that was not even a word. It was more of a silence that was understandable. I was standing at the edge of a pond. Nothing living, what we call living, was in sight, and yet the voice entered me, my body, life, with so much happiness, and there was nothing there but the water, the sky, the grass. The voice entered me with so much happiness. And so we, we open in that way to the, to the earth, to beauty. We cultivate our own inner light. We do that. It's, it's one of the great fruits of retreats and practice. And we, we can um, deliberately cultivate those qualities and focus a lot. It's a very important way to, to practice. And I think as we have both of those emphasis, the willingness to go into the the dark, and then the opening to the light, including the deliberate cultivation of our, of our beauty, of our joy, of our mindfulness, of our, of our care, we, we become able really to see how they're interconnected, how we, in a sense, we might say we go into the dark in order to be able to see better, or we, we stop in order to be able to learn better how to move. We're willing to be with what's difficult so that in the long run it will be easier. (laughs) It's very, very interesting. So the light we see inside the dark and the dark inside the light. I think I'll finish just with a, a poem about this relation between darkness and light. I'll finish with this. This is by um, uh, Pablo Neruda from Chile. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Let's just sit for a little while together.
If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.